Well, 1 Timothy chapter 5, if you have uh, your Bible, turn there with me, if you would. This is the, uh, the 13th week, as I recall, in the study of 1 Timothy. And what we do here is we kind of work our way through books of the Bible one at a time, seeking to, uh, to understand the text in its context and really, really lean in and listen to what God may be saying to us with humble hearts, that the kind that he provides by his grace. And even though I've, we've been looking at this book, and I've mentioned to you this book written by Paul to Timothy in the church at Ephesus, it's not primarily a book, a letter on how things function in the church. It is primarily a, a book on the centrality of the gospel in the life of the church, and even a warning against some of those peripheral matters that can distract a church from her disciple-making mission. Um, but even though it's not primarily about how things function in the church, there's still plenty in the letter about how the church ought to behave, how the church ought to live in community. In fact, in the first half of this letter, remember Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, this is 1 Timothy 3, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So it does contain plenty about how the church lives together, how the church uh, uh, operates. And this morning, we're going to see what I'll call four marks of a faithful congregation. What does it mean to be a good church? What does it mean to be, more importantly, I guess, a God-honoring church? What does it mean to be a church that honors God? Now, there are a number of marks, of course, throughout the Bible and what a faithful church is. And uh, Mark Dever, who is the senior pastor at the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., has written a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, which uh, I know this church went through on Wednesday night some time ago. So there, there are a number of marks, and we're not going to get to all of those. But we do see in this passage, I believe, four marks of a faithful church. So we're going to look at that together. 1 Timothy chapter 5, we'll cover verses 17 through 25, but let me just begin by reading verse 17. Text reads like this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So again, if you're new, um, we don't just talk about topics that I come up with on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday of the previous week as we work our way through the text. The text of Scripture actually governs what we're going to talk about. And this morning, again, talking about the leadership of the church. And we've already seen so far in this letter that when God saves us, He, he supernaturally makes us new, makes us a, a new creature in Christ. And then He saves us not only from sin and death, but also to obedience, to good works, but he also rescues us from our independence. He saves us from our independence, then placing us into a healing and preserving spiritual community. The church should be the, sh the sort of community, by the way, over every other group in the world where we feel loved, accepted, and we can actually be real with each other. We don't have to pretend that we have it all together. We don't have to act like everything is great at home at every moment. We can actually live with our masks off, so to speak, and be honest with each other. And the church, this group of called out ones, is the group, unlike any other group in the world, where we should know, we know that we're actually loved on our good days and our bad days. And we know that we're in this battle with people who will go to war with us. And I know that that's 
your testimony this morning. For many of you know, when you've been at your worst, the church has been there for you. And this is the way it should be. God actually places us in a group of people who will pursue us relationally and even go after us to rescue us when we encounter physical, emotional, or spiritual difficulty. God knows our tendency to wander away from Him. And so, in order to keep us from falling away from the faith, in order to keep us close to Himself, He surrounds us with a group of people who can help us see our blind spots. You know, we all have blind spots. Things in our life that we don't see clearly. And He surrounds us with people who can help us in that area. And as we've already seen in this book, He actually puts us under the spiritual watch care of leaders who are responsible to care for and shepherd our souls. Those leaders are called elders. Churches led by, throughout the New Testament, the plurality of elders, a group of elders. And if you're wondering how we're doing here at Capshaw in our transition to an elder-led church, we're doing very well by God's grace. We're, we're talking with and, and with, with men who, who are discerning whether God has given them that desire to serve in this way. And so God's really helping moving, move us along in that way. The church is ultimately led by Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. But as we await his return, he's placed elders, again, to qualified, gifted men to lead the church. Now, the verse that I just read indicates there are two kinds of elders. There are those, those who provide oversight uh, and leadership to the church, and there are those who do all of those things and carry out the ministry of preaching. Paul refers to those as those who labor in preaching and teaching. And Paul says something is owed those who rule well. Not just rule, but rule well. Now, the word translated rule, by the way, by the way doesn't mean dictate. Um, it's not a reference to a dictator, but a person who provides direction, oversight, and care. Those who rule well are those who are effective at establishing a gospel community. Those who cast a biblical vision for the church. Those who shepherd the hearts of God's people. And Paul says those who rule well, who rule in that way, are worthy of, he says, double honor. And it's not about buildings. It's not about budgets. It's not about numbers. Ruling has to do, well has to do with, again, fostering a faithful, faithful discipleship and a true gospel community. And those who rule well, Paul says, are worthy of double honor. So here's the first mark of a faithful congregation. A faithful congregation honors its pastor's elders. I put a slash in there between pastor and elder because a pastor is an elder. And an elder is a pastor. And so these men that we're talking with who will be part of the first elder team, they're going to be your church's pastors. Now, they may be engineers and teachers or construction workers or nurses or whatever they may be, but, but they're going to be your church's pastors. An elder is a pastor and a pastor is an elder. The phrase double honor, verse 17, doesn't refer to double pay, but is a reference to two things. Respect and remuneration. So respect and pay, that's the double aspect there. Those who labor well should be respected and paid, particularly, malista in the Greek, that is particularly those who labor at preaching and teaching. Even though all elders should be able to uh, rightly handle the word, the ability to teach there is a qualification for elders, as we saw 
uh, when we looked at 1 Timothy 3, there are certain elders and pastors who are uniquely gifted and qualified at teaching and preaching the word. And they uh, are being called by God to do so or do double honor that is both respect and financial support. Now respect, just like disrespect, can take on a variety of forms, can it? What does it mean to, to honor, to respect? Well, it starts with, with what you say to and about your pastors, your elders. What do you say when they're not around? What do you say when you drive away from the church building on Sunday morning? How would you characterize your discussion about your pastors? If someone asked your children, what do your mommy and daddy think about your pastors? What would your children say, having overheard your conversations? Respecting your elders includes uh, honoring them in receiving their counsel and even their correction when their, of course, correction is consistent with the scriptures. Sometimes respect for, comes in the form of encouragement. And people of Capshaw, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, are, are wonderful at this, providing ongoing encouragement for your pastors. And I'm, I, as one of your pastors, I'm grateful for it. Receive all kinds of encouragement from this church family. All of those things I mentioned, and one of the, one of the most tangible ways, of course, that a, a church honors its, elder, its pastors is through the provision of needs or just by providing a decent pay. Paul uses a couple of quotations from the scriptures, one from the Old Testament and one from Jesus to, to drive this point home. Look at verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So first one is from uh, the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 25. The second one is uh, a quotation of Jesus. The first one is from Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4. Must have been one of Paul's favorite uh, analogies. He uses it again in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. Here's what he's saying. An ox is a beast of burden. And when an ox is working hard cultivating the ground for planting, scattering grain, so the grain can be scattered and so on, um, it would be terribly unkind to muzzle the ox while it's working. He deserves to nibble now and then from the ground that he's tilling, the ground that he's working. He deserves a, a portion of the fruit of his work, so to speak. So the ox, in, in our context, is the, the pastor elder who labors at the preparation of and the preaching of the word. So to put it plainly, I'm kind of the senior ox here. Um, <laughs> To be honest with you, I would prefer a more flattering comparison. Um, I wish the scriptures would have used something more like a lion or a cheetah or a gazelle, something a little bit more graceful, but um, this is what it uses. And by the way, the, the scriptures use a variety of, they use some strange metaphors sometimes, don't they? You know, uh, you think about this one in the Old Testament, when a man was, was grieving or mourning or filled with shame, he would shave his head as a sign of humiliation and weakness. Uh, now, of course, we know that a shaved head is a sign of beauty and strength, but that's not the way that it was back then. The Bible uses some, some strange metaphors, and here the ox is the metaphor for this beast of burden, the one who labors at the preaching and teaching of God's Word. The second quote that Paul uses is actually from Jesus, the laborer deserves his wages. In other words, ministers of the gospel are a bit like farmhands 
They deserve compensation for their labors. And this is the way it's been for thousands of years, going all the way back to uh, the, the Levites of the Old Testament who were called out by God and supported by a portion of the grain offering, the wine, the oil, the honey, the produce of the field. And so this is a, this is a concept that's not new to the church at Ephesus. It, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Now, some churches, they, they, like, they believe, they like to keep their pastors sort of uh, poor and humble. And so they deprive their pastors of a decent salary, believing that this will prevent them from thinking too much about money. But here's the thing, it actually has a counterproductive effect. Because what it does is it causes their ministers, their pastors, to think about money all the time because they're wondering, how am I going to pay the bills? How can I provide for my family? So it actually, it, it does the opposite of what it intends to do. Uh, this is not the mindset here at Capshaw, which I'm grateful for. This church believes in, in providing their pastors with a, a decent wage, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but this goes back all the way to the Old Testament. Now let's move on to the text. Look at, first, uh, look at verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Here's a second mark of a faithful congregation. A faithful congregation protects its leaders from false accusations. I read an article recently that said that you know, we, when we think about the culture that we live in, 21st century North America, we, we, sometimes, we sometimes equate it with sort of ancient Athens, first century Athens. Athens, Greece, uh, in the first century. And actually, it's the same way today. I was there, a couple, well, 2004, so a few years ago. But uh, it was known to be a place where, where folks love to exchange ideas. And so they love to talk about, debate, discuss all kinds of different ideas. And this article was saying... We, we sometimes think about our particular culture as, as a bit like ancient Athens where people love to sit around and talk about uh, and share ideas and compare philosophies. But this article said, I don't really think that's the case anymore. I would actually like in our particular culture with ancient Babylon, the fact that we're actually exiles. The intent of secularists is not to engage with us, not really to hear our perspective, not even to outthink us. But often it's to overpower us, to coerce us into accepting their philosophies and their ideologies as they work their way into even elementary schools. Think about it. Do those who reject Christianity and Christ's teaching, do they really want to hear well-reasoned arguments about the sanctity of life, about sexual ethics, about gender, about marriage, relationships. Not really. Not really. Many would rather label anyone who disagrees as a bigot, as a Neanderthal, as a wooden-headed, whatever. If you don't believe me, try suggesting at a dinner party sometime, maybe at where you work, that you don't consider Bruce Jenner a, an American hero for his transition. And you won't get a lot of support, most likely. In this post-everything culture that we're in, there's a hostility toward the things of God. And then you have these preachers of God's word who, these pastor elders who are faithful to the biblical text, saying things like, to those who consider divorce because they're kind of over each other, no, you actually need to be reconciled and stay married. That doesn't go over very well. You have these, these preachers and these pastors and elders who are trying to stay faithful to the biblical text, saying to the man who's been terribly wronged, who wants to get revenge. No, let God avenge you. Leave room for God's wrath. 
to the woman being ridiculed at work, pray for those who are your enemies. To the young man struggling with same-sex attraction, do not give in to your desires. Flee sexual temptation. Find your satisfaction and wholeness in Christ alone. To the Muslim and the Buddhist and the atheist saying, there's actually one God. And the only way to be right with that God is through the person and work of Jesus Christ and no other prophet. Not surprisingly, these statements are not often well received. In fact, they sometimes bring on the, the vitriol and the hatred of those to whom they are spoken. And I've had this happen more than once to me. I've been threatened. I've been cursed to my face. I did a funeral one time for a well-known, a very prominent atheist in Riverside, California. This was a professor and author. And his surviving sister asked me to do the memorial service. And I'm, and I'm in Riverside at this huge gathering. And I presented, I, I hope, gently and lovingly the gospel. Uh, letting people know that there actually is a God. And there is one way to be right with that God. That's through faith in Jesus Christ. I thought I was going to be ambushed. Seriously. And at the end, I mean, people made a beeline to me and they didn't have very kind things to say to me. Paul says, a faithful congregation protects its leaders from false accusations. Sometimes those who are faithful to the biblical text, they, they incur such anger from people that the people then start slandering them, saying things about them that aren't true. In fact, John Calvin says this, none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. This comes not only from the difficulty of their duties, which are so great that sometimes they sink under them. But added to that, even while they do all their duties correctly and commit not even the smallest error, they never avoid a thousand criticisms. It is indeed a trick of Satan to estrange men from their ministers so as to gradually bring their teaching into contempt and the authority of God's holy teaching is diminished. Paul Zoll, who's written a, a number of books that have been influential in, in my own spiritual development. He was a Harvard grad, longtime pastor and, and professor. He concluded after talking with hundreds of pastors over the years that when a pastor leaves a church, it's almost always because of a very small handful of people, typically less than eight, and many times just one or two. But that one or two or that seven or eight, they become so vociferous, so loud, so persistent in their criticism that the pastor eventually says, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to deal with this anymore. And many times those accusations are false accusations, unfair and untrue. Teachers of the word ought to be protected from malicious insult. It doesn't mean that teachers, preachers, pastors, elders are above the law or above criticism. Absolutely not. The fact that they receive protection from slander means that when it is clear that they have sinned, it is that much more egregious. Look at verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. If an elder is proved to be persisting in sin, the elder is recalcitrant. The elder is unrepentant, unwilling, unbroken over his sin. He continues to persist in an arrogant manner, in an unrepentant manner. Then that sin must be brought out into the open publicly. Now, of course, public rebuke is not the first step. 
First, an elder must be rebuked privately with witnesses and with evidence. But if an elder refuses to repent of a sin, or if the sin itself is a public one, thus staining the reputation of the church, then an elder must be confronted for that sin publicly. Now consider this. How scandalous is it? And how damaging to the body of Christ if sin among leaders of the church is common knowledge, but no one in the church has the courage to confront that sin. Imagine what, imagine what the people the believe, the people who are around the church, people are in the neighborhood are thinking. Everybody knows what's going on at that church. And yet no one is doing anything about it. Imagine the stain that brings on the, the name of Christ. When that happens, in the words of John Chrysostom, this opens the door for others to sin and emboldens them to offend. What happens, though, when an erring pastor is held accountable? Verse 20 says, others will stand in fear, fearing not only the consequences of their sin, but fearing the discipline of a loving and holy God. Of course, much prayer must go into this, much humility goes into this confrontation, and there must be no bias or no favoritism. Look at verse 21. Do not, or rather, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So Paul, he didn't really need this sort of heavy backing. He didn't need to appeal to this sort of divine tribunal, but he does. And he says, he says, he calls on God, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels. And with that, he implores Timothy to be fair and impartial in meeting out this accountability. Just because someone is a fellow elder, just because someone has a position of prominence, just because someone is well known in the community, doesn't mean that they are above being corrected. It doesn't mean they're above the law, so to speak. But at the same time, Timothy has to make sure that he's not entertaining unfair allegations, even if the person making them has a loud audience. Here's the issue. Even though this is a specific reference to dealing with elders, there's a broader application here. And it makes for our third point. A faithful congregation talks about and deals with sin. It's become very popular now to say, well, we don't talk about sin in our church. That's too much of a downer. We don't talk about judgment. We don't talk about wrath. We don't talk about the cross. We don't talk about blood. We don't talk about sin. That just brings people down. We're not going to talk about those sorts of things. We preach God's love around here. Well, if you've been around Capshaw very long, you know this is a church where we celebrate the love of God. We talk about the depth and the height and the width of God's love. In fact, it is without a doubt the overarching theme of the Bible. The Bible is a story of God's love that's so powerful, so amazing, that it prompted him to send his own son to die. That's some kind of love, isn't it? So yeah, we talk about God's love. We talk a lot about God's love. But we can't even begin to grasp God's love until we understand what he's done to save us. And we can't understand what he's done to save us unless we recognize how desperately we need it saved. And so when you're talking about God's love, you have to start with the very beginning, the holiness of God, the majesty of God, and the length to which he went to save a broken and sinful and undeserving people. That's the only way we can really get a full understanding of God's love. 
I've said this so many times over the course of my ministry, but it bears repeating. Until we're crushed by the burden of the law and our failure to keep it, we will never appreciate the beauty of the gospel. In other words, until we really understand just how far short we've fallen of God's perfect standard, until we really understand and realize just how broken and sinful we are in light of, compared to a holy God, the good news won't really be that good. We have to really grasp the bad news and just how bad it is in order for the good news to be that beautiful. This is why we talk about sin. Not just the sin that's out there in the world. We talk about the sin in our own hearts. Talk about the sin in my own heart. My own impatience. My own self-centeredness. My own lack of love. We talk about our pride and our arrogance and our laziness and our shortcomings. Because when we minimize sin, we shrink the gospel and we minimize the grace of God. But when we talk openly about sin, again, not just the big bad sin out there in the world, but the sin in our own hearts, then we shine a spotlight on the beauty and the majesty of God's love and His grace. See, people are searching for real answers. People are searching for real answers. And the answers they're getting, they're not helping. The advice of the self-help gurus who say the secret to happiness is forming better habits and finding that inner beauty and that inner strength and diving deep down into your own abilities. It's not working. And people are frustrated. People are despondent. People are hopeless. What we need is a recovery of the gospel. And this only happens as we begin with the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. In 1934, H. Richard Niebuhr preached predicted what would soon happen. This is 1934. He predicted what would soon happen as the gospel was being pushed to the periphery. He said what would soon happen was, what would soon be preached would be a God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And do we not see that all over the place? Preachers who dare to get up and preach without ever mentioning the name Jesus. Preachers who will preach for 35, 38, 40 minutes and never even point people to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. If we don't talk about what Jesus has done, if we don't focus on the cross, there's not going to be any power for transformation and no hope for anyone. This was H. Richard Niebuhr 80 years ago, but I think he was on to something. Fewer and fewer people willing to talk about sin, confession, repentance, the cross. But Paul commands Timothy, in the presence of God, Jesus Christ, and the elect angels, sin must be dealt with in the church. The faithful church deals with sin. And in order for sin to be dealt with, it must first be honestly talked about. Now there's one final mark of a faithful congregation. Look at verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Here's the fourth mark of a faithful congregation. A faithful church exercises patience and discernment in the installation of leaders. Patience and discernment. See, we live in a must-have-it-now culture, don't we? And I am a big culprit of this mentality myself. 
If I get behind somebody in, in the checkout line in the grocery store and it's somebody who wants to share her life story, I, it, it drives me crazy. I have to remind myself, I have to say to myself, she really needs, she needs to share her story. If I get behind somebody, you ever been, I was behind somebody the other day at Sprouts, and they looked at the, the credit card machine with a chip reader as if they'd never, ever seen anything like this in their life. They turned their card in like eight different directions. Like, how does this... I thought, well, maybe there are some people who still live off the land and they, they never go to a grocery store, never see. I was very impatient. I was, t- I, was, I was going through, messing with the magazines. I was making a lot of noise behind. I, mean, I, I get impatient. We, we, we live in a very impatient world. I'm a very impatient person at times. We want things in a hurry. Well, it's easy to fall prey to that approach when it comes to the installation of leaders in the church. It's a noble thing to desire and serve as a pastor or elder, but not everyone is gifted to, and not everyone is qualified. And if a man who desires to be an elder is forced to wait a little while, that's okay. That's okay. But if a man who's not ready, doesn't have the character, doesn't have the giftedness, is installed anyway, that can be devastating in the church. It can be devastating. So elders choose men to serve after watching closely their lives and doctrine. And after the believing community, the church actually confirms these things. Paul says, don't be hasty, nor take part in the sins of others. That phrase means don't be too quick to install elders. Or in some way, some mysterious way, you may be responsible for the sins they cause in their leadership. Now that's not something I want anything to do with. I want to make sure that we're patient. So some of the questions that I've learned to ask in order to avoid uh, being too quick in the laying on of hands are, does this person have a kingdom mindset? Does this person think broadly about the kingdom? Does this person have a, a, a reputation of being humble? Here's one that I look at in, in my own heart, my own life, and others before they're installed to be an elder. How does this person respond when he hears the word No. You know, you can learn a lot about a person when he doesn't get what he wants. You can learn perhaps the most about a person when she doesn't get what she wants. How does this person, how does this man who aspires to be an elder, how does he receive no for an answer? Is this person already wielding positive influence? Is he already shepherding the church? And here's one that I've learned to ask myself. If I died, is this a person that I would want my own children to follow and emulate? And there are people in this church, there are, there are a number of men in this church, and I actually had about seven or eight written down initially, but I didn't want to leave anyone out that I respect. But there are a number of men in this church that I, I would say with great eagerness, that I would say, if I, if I died, if something happened to me, I would want my children emulating and following this man. I'd want them looking after the way he lives. I'd want them talking to him. i want them following him. So There's a list of of, of men at this church that I would want my children emulating. These are questions that simply help us to flesh out the qualifications outlined in 1 Timothy 3. And if the answer to these questions is no, then that person is not ready to be an elder. It doesn't mean they can never be an elder, but they're not ready to be an elder. And the church then should exercise patience in the installation. Now, let's finish this section out here quickly. Look at verses 23 through 25. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments, 
The sins of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So Paul tells Timothy to put aside the water he's drinking and to consume some wine in moderation, of course. Thus he says, use a little wine. Now, why is this so difficult? Why uh, Timothy's unease? Why his timidity? Well, because some of these sins are kind of hard to pin down, aren't they? Gossip, for example, is a difficult one to pin down. Some, some sins, on the other hand, are conspicuous. They stand out. In other words, when they receive judgment, when, when their sins are pointed out, no one is surprised by that because it's been evident to all. But Paul says other sins appear later. They are inconspicuous. Uh, Jerry Bridges calls these secret sins or respectable sins. The subtle sins that we tolerate in ourselves and others, sins like pride, which doesn't always manifest itself in a way that everyone notices. Selfishness, judgmentalism, unthankfulness. Have you ever thought about that one? There's a, a fascinating section in Romans chapter 1 where Paul outlines the characteristics of those who are outside of Christ. These are the sins of those who are outside of Christ. He calls them God-haters, rejecters of God, murderers. He goes on this long list. And then he says, after saying they were debased in mind, murderers, haters of God, he says, they did not honor him as God. And then he has this, this incredible phrase, neither did they give thanks. One of the characteristics of those who are outside of Christ, rejectors of God, is that they're unthankful. They're not grateful. But this, like other sins, is inconspicuous. One of those sins that appears later. The point, though, is clear. Caution and courage must be exercised when dealing with all sin. Sin must be dealt with, and leaders are not immune. But great care and humility must be demonstrated in addressing sin, even addressing the sins of the leaders of the church. Now, there's one final thing that I want to say here this morning, and maybe the most important thing that I've said. Talking about and dealing with sin doesn't mean simply pointing it out. A church that faithfully deals with sin regularly, faithfully, consistently, and unwaveringly points people to the one who suffered for the forgiveness, so that forgiveness of sins would be possible. The one who died for sins. The one who has the power to forgive every kind of sin under the sun. Faithfully dealing with sin as a church means pointing people to Jesus Christ, the one who fully and successfully dealt with sin on the cross. And I'll never forget, early in my ministry, I was preaching it was, a, it was a Sunday in January. I was preaching on the Sanctity of Life. It was Sanctity of Life Sunday, which I think is it's usually toward the end of January. And, and, and this is, a, this is a, a subject which I'm very, very passionate about. The sanctity of life, the protection of preborn children. So, man, I mean, I was just preaching it. I was preaching it. I was talking about uh, the, how, the, how God values life. And I was talking about, I was calling abortion actually what it was. I was saying this is the termination of a life that God loves. I was talking about how personhood begins at conception. And I was fired up and I was passionate and I was, I was on fire to communicate. God cares about people of all stages. God cares about the preborn. And I preached that sermon and I think I handled the text well. I think what I said was theologically accurate. 
But when I sat down, when I was done, the front row, there was a man who was two rows behind me, and I saw him kind of stretching to get my attention, and he stretched, and he tapped me on the shoulder, and he handed me a little note that had been folded up probably a dozen times. It was in a tiny little square, and I thought, do I really want to open this right now? I didn't really want to, but curiosity got the best of me. And so I opened up this, this note, and on lined paper was a very short statement. What about the women who have had abortions? What hope do you have for them this morning? And I have to tell you, I was crushed. I was crushed. Not because somebody had criticized me. Not because someone had pointed this out. I was crushed because in my youthful passion and in my enthusiasm to protect the sanctity of life, I had failed to give any hope whatsoever to those who had committed the sin of abortion or any other sin for that matter. I hadn't given any hope. There was no good news in my message. I'd addressed some serious offense against God, but I'd not given the only source of hope for every kind of sin, the crosswork of Jesus Christ. See, to be faithful as a church in pointing out sin doesn't mean we just talk about other people's sin. It doesn't even mean simply that we talk about our sin. It means we point people to the one who bore our sin and shame on the cross. The one who promised that in him, by faith, our own sin will never be held against us. So when Satan reminds us, you are a sinner and God hates sin, we say, you're right. I am a sinner. A horrible one, in fact. But my sins were taken care of by another and they no longer define me. When Satan whispers to us and says, you've blown it again. Same sin yet again. There's no help for you. We can say, yeah, I've blown it again. But there is a helper named Jesus who gave himself for my sins and who has presented me blameless before God when I believed on him in faith. A faithful church talks about and deals with sin. But let us never forget this. To deal with sin faithfully and accurately means to declare boldly and with humility there is no sin beyond the power of Jesus Christ to forgive. And maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, yeah, but what about this? Or maybe you're, you're thinking, I, I, I'm one of those ones who had an abortion. Or maybe you're thinking, you're thinking I, I, I left my husband. I was unfaithful. I left my wife. I was unfaithful to her. Or maybe you're thinking, you don't know what I've done. Let me assure you this morning, because we're a church that wants to deal with sin, there is no sin in your life. There is no sin that you've ever committed, that you've ever, nothing you've ever done, nothing you've ever said, nothing you've ever practiced. There's no sin that you've ever committed that is beyond the power of Jesus Christ to forgive. Even this morning, even this morning, for those who cling to him in faith, Jesus pronounces us brand new totally forgiven, accepted by God, beloved by Him, and righteous before Him because of the righteousness that is ours, that was Christ, is now ours by faith. Let's pray.